let's say I'm playing out something that happened. I had a really difficult argument with someone. You know, we had a really difficult conversation. I'm playing it over in my head in an unhelpful way. You can project it onto a cinnamon screen and imagine yourself just watching it. There's the distance there. You could imagine it on your phone and you swipe it away. The point is not whether it's real or not. The point is, can you play with the properties of that image so that your brain doesn't respond to it in a way that says this is happening? And then your body doesn't go into this state of stress. And it might be this thing really happened or maybe it might be quite likely to happen. Not the point. The point is it's not helping you to fall inside this image. Well, that's the voice of Dr. Sam Akbar, and she is a clinical psychologist who has the tools to help us go from just surviving to absolutely thriving. Well, welcome to the Liz Our Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all to have a better second half. I'm Liz Earle, and it's my mission to find ways for us all to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Well, a clinical psychologist, Sam specialises in treating refugees with PTSD. Now, these are people who've been tortured, survived war or sexual violence. She also teaches and trains other clinicians from UCL in London to the Middle East. Now, she has written a handbook, brilliantly named Stressilient, which really does do what it says on the tin. And in it, she shares accessible tools and techniques for managing stress and building resilience, even when we're not in a war zone, although perhaps it might feel like it some days. And I guess something that we could all do with, really, you know, just so many of us feel stressed in our daily lives and are perhaps lacking the ability to respond to life's hurdles. Now, we can't always change the stresses around us, but we can affect how we react to them. So how do we better manage our minds, handle our emotions and concentrate on building a life full of real meaning? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, Sam, welcome. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here. You have had a fascinating backstory and a a brilliant new book. So I'm super looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so thrilled to be on your show. Oh, well, thank you. Bless you. And I just kind of wanted to start really by hearing your story because you've lived the most extraordinary life. You previously worked as a documentary director and a producer on shows like Dispatches and Panorama. 
Did your investigations there lead you to where you are now as a clinical psychologist? You know, I think it did, but sort of unwittingly. So I left university with a classics degree, obviously, and I still love my Latin and Greek. And uh, I wanted to work in TV and I'd always been sort of interested in current affairs. And very luckily, I ended up sort of working at places like, you know, Dispatches or Panorama as a researcher and working my way up and eventually producing and and directing documentaries. And I think what I do really recall, I have very particular memory of making a series of very short films for Channel 4 about a woman who's was killed in a hit and run. The the kind of premise of the of these very short films was moments where your life changes. Suddenly one thing happens and it takes a totally different trajectory. And I was really interested in that. And um but what I felt very clearly at the time is I didn't feel comfortable, I suppose, talking to these parents and not helping in some way. I felt I think, you know, of course documentaries and investigations are so important but I began to realize maybe this isn't quite what is right for me and I began to think well I, I, I want to do things that are more actively about helping which makes me sound by the way a lot nicer than I am actually in real life right anyone who's listening to me now is like having a massive eye roll um, who knows me and I think what I started to realize is what other job is there where you can be interested in people? Because that's what documentaries are. It's, it's an interest in people. Where could I also be nosy? Because that's what it also <laughs> is. But be more helpful, I think, and have a more one-to-one meaningful connection. And I think that was psychology. And so what I was doing, and I guess I talk about this a lot in the book, it was I, I was sort of unwittingly, Liz, distilling my values and trying to make decisions on the basis of what I wanted to stand for and what I, how I wanted to treat other people and what I wanted to be my life to be about. And I had another one just briefly, which is I remember we were working with some refugees and I remember thinking, well, this also doesn't you know, feel right. I want to help in a different way. And that's how I sort of ended up thinking about psychology and then eventually going from TV to psychology. Really extraordinary. And and I love that. And I I know that we will dig into values and Mm. the importance of them, particularly in relation to to our well-being. I know that you've recently returned from northern Iraq, where you were training clinicians in treating survivors who've been so brutalised by ISIS. I mean, that is seriously hardcore stuff. I'd love to get a sense there of of what that actually involved for you. Well, um, I went, there's an amazing... um, program set up by a German Kurdish psychologist in in northern Iraq in a place called Duhuk. And obviously when ISIS were controlling large swathes of Iraq, after they fell, he saw there would be this incredible need for help. And Duhuk has uh, about a million displaced people around it. Yazidi community, also Syrians in, in, in about, I think, over 20 refugee camps. And so um, they're training up these amazing psychologists there. They're brilliant. And they asked me to go and and to do some training for them for uh, a few days on working with PTSD in a very particular way. And it was a really humbling experience. 
you know, we always talk in the NH, you know, I moan a lot about, oh, my room is really noisy and, oh, you know. <laughs> First and, world problems, yeah, really. Yeah, having, having said all that, I think we should aspire to better things in, in mm-hmm. England. We should be, you know, the, the NHS should be running well and for patients, maybe yeah. better than it is. But, you know, they're doing their work in camps, in tents. They're just trying to scrabble bits of treatment where they can and doing some amazing works. So it was actually incredibly humbling experience but it really actually was so important to go and share something you're learning with people on the ground in these really difficult situations and for them to find it helpful and to make those really lovely connections with your peers in other countries was just so meaningful I mean it's just extraordinary I don't think any of us can probably comprehend actually being there And I think I'll make what is probably a fair sweeping statement that many of us have been incredibly lucky for the most part to not know the Mm. level of trauma that you work with. But are there principles there that guide your work regardless of what the specific stress or, or the trauma in question is? That's a really good question because actually something people ask me a lot is, is, oh, you know, how can you just write a general self-help book on, you know, don't you just think other people's problems are sort of trivial? And if you get into this relativity thing, why wouldn't I then say, well, I'm not going to treat a torture victim who's only been in prison for two weeks. I mean, that's just nothing, isn't it? I see people who've been in prison for 10 years. So I just, I'm not sure how helpful that is for me as a clinician to think like that, number Mm. one. The person in front of me has a difficulty, has PTSD. I I will treat that the same however they present. I, I view it as the same thing. Similarly, of course, you know, when I'm talking about our day-to-day stresses, they are different. They are just qualitatively different. You know, I'm, I'm in my other job in dealing with torture. However, I do think that when people are struggling with difficulties in their lives... They're struggling with with difficulties in their lives. I kind of don't want to judge that. I want to help that, whatever you're going through. And maybe you're not being tortured, but maybe you've got a parent with Alzheimer's and you're trying to manage that and your kids and your changes you're going through. Like that's big, very difficult stuff. And I wanted to speak to that as well. So I think the principles the way you treat PTSD is quite specific but the principles around learning how your brain works learning to how to manage your emotions trying to find meaning through values when you experience very difficult things are similar well I think we should manage expectations up front and you know I gave a nod to this earlier on but mm-hmm. I do love the first line of Stressilient it's <laughs> quote I can't eliminate stress from your life so what is becoming resilient to stress about then? Is it, is it kind of accepting it or, or what can we hope for from your work? Well, look, the reality is, isn't it, I think you would agree with me, if you care about people or anything, there will be some stress that comes with that, right? Because loved ones get ill or move away or you love a job, maybe you can't do it anymore. There are realities of life that we're not in control of and they cause us stress sometimes. If you care about those things, you'll you'll experience them. So my premise was, I made I said that line just so no one complained. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's a disclaimer. Yeah, yeah, disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> because actually, who could do that? How could I just do that? I just couldn't. 
What I can do, though, is help people manage that or ride that stress in a way that maybe is different to what they've done before. Because I just I, I think there are different kinds of stress. I think there's sometimes good stress that propels you towards doing something that's meaningful to you. There's bad stress, which paralyzes you, actually. And I thought, well, if I can help people understand how to kind of navigate stress a bit differently, then that would be helpful rather than saying, well, you can't have any stress. Well, how how would you take that stress away? Because if you've got people in your life or things in your life that you care about, they cause you stress. Children. Yes. Oh, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Parents. <laughs> oh, oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> Spouses. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Like they, <laughs> There is stress there because you're always dealing with other people. Our bosses. Yeah, everything. Will, everything will... will could potentially be stressful. So it's kind of how you're looking at that, realising what you're controlling, and then employing some skills to maybe be able to stand back and think, what's what's a more useful thing I could do in this situation? Mm. Well, I want to make sure that we're kind of on the same page here about what resilience actually means, you know, the, the sort of second part of mm-hmm. your word there. Uh, you know, are we talking about severe mental fortitude or is it something that's maybe just a little bit more nuanced than that? Well, I think we need to, maybe my next book should be Rethinking Resilience because I think we have a really, it's one of those words, isn't it, that's bandied about a lot and everyone has a, a different understanding of it. What I think the more helpful way of thinking about resilience, and as I mentioned, I love my classical education. Resilience comes from a Latin word, resiliere, to bounce back, to get up again. It's not about, I never get knocked down. It's not about, I never hurt. It's not about, I shut myself off and I toughen up and never feel it. That's not it. I actually think it's completely the opposite. I think being open to your emotions is a superpower because once you realise they don't kill you and overwhelm you, and I used to really believe they would, really, you know, when you're really upset about something, I thought it would, it might, it feels like it would kill you at times, certainly kind of crush you. When you're open to that and you have ways of dealing with that and you can be kind to yourself within that, You've got a totally different way about thinking about resilience because it's not about avoiding the difficult things. It's about trusting that you can handle the difficult things. So my my version of resilience isn't toughen up, don't feel your emotions. My versions of resilience is be open to those emotions, learn some skills about how to make room for them and go forth into your life full of meaning. That's so interesting that, you know, resilience isn't just about becoming completely hardened to everything with this sort of hard nut that's protecting us. You're saying that we actually still want to experience that whole kind of spectrum of emotions that that come with being human. Yeah. And actually, I think that the thing that makes you conversely less resilient is to push all that stuff away. Because, you know, I talk about emotions being like beach balls, you know, when you're, uh, you know, at the pool and you're holding a beach ball although how many of us really holiday with beach balls I think we're probably sure. a little bit old but <laughs> it's a nice it's idea, a nice but, idea. You know. <laughs> you're holding it under the water right and that requires energy doesn't it to keep it all under wraps under the water but you know your life is happening elsewhere with your friends playing in the pool or chatting or having a cocktail at the, at the pool hut right you're you, but you're wedged to keeping that ball under the water 
What a lot of energy spent on controlling something that really ultimately, in the long run, you may not be able to control. In the short term, sure, that because otherwise people wouldn't do it. But it just, it's not a rich life to do that. It's not an emotionally rich life to do that. You talk about the concept of psychological flexibility. Mm. Is that then sort of what's at the heart of this, that, that we develop a more flexible approach? Yeah, I really like this idea of being flexible about your stance. So, you know, you're able to handle life's difficulties in a way that isn't rigid, that is in a way that allows you to notice your thinking and your relationship to your thinking, rather than saying, I mustn't have those negative thoughts. I mustn't think like that. Good vibes only. I must be positive all the time. Of course, That works for a lot of people and that has its place at times, but it can't, I worry that that's the only thing some people have as a resource. So when you're flexible, you're able to kind of move between noticing your thinking and your emotions and bringing some mindfulness to that. And also thinking about how can I move in my valued directions? How can I make those things happen? How can I take action about those? So you're doing this kind of, elegant dance between values and thinking and emotions and making things happen all the time and that's the flexibility. So being resilient to stresses then and overwhelm in particular isn't about ignoring the problem you know pushing that beach ball down what is happening in our brains if we try and run from that or or suppress our thoughts is there kind of some sort of psychological repercussion to that? Well ultimately the more you push things away there's some great psychological ex- experiments about this. If you were willing, could I do one on you now? Sure. Okay, so if you imagine, I just want you to just close your eyes and just whatever you do, Liz, don't, don't imagine a white bear, right? So no white bears just lolloping across the frozen tundra. Okay. Just right. can you not think about a white bear? You can think about anything else. Yeah. I'm happy for you to think okay. about it, but, but please don't right. think about this white bear furry white bear just running around. I really want to be clear you're not thinking about a white bear. So we've got that straight, right, Liz? You're not going to think about a white bear, yeah? Right, okay. Yeah, good. What happened there? Well, there were a lot of white bears. Yeah. (laughs) And they were doing a lot of running. Yeah. So the the, the reason I I love this experiment, because it, it was done by a Harvard psychologist who was looking at what happens when you push things away. I mean, he wasn't that interested, I'm sure, in white bears particularly, but he got people to do that. Now, Mm. maybe white bears aren't a problem, but negative thinking might be, I'm useless, I'm hopeless. And what you notice is when you push that white bear away, not only does it come back, but he also found it came back more frequently and with more intensity than if you just let it run across your mind. So the more we push things away, they come back with greater force at you. Not only that, in order to not think about a white, to tell yourself not to think about a white way, you have to do something quite meta, which is then think, am I not thinking about the thing that I don't want to think about, thereby thinking about it? So you've got this kind of double whammy. And as I say, white bear's fine. But if you're dealing with lots of thoughts or judgments about yourself particularly, and you get really caught up in trying to push it away, they will come back. Yeah, they find somewhere to go. 
it's interesting that you know you talk about thoughts and the power of them you know one of the quotes or the kind of pop psychology memes that seems to crop up on social media quite a lot is you are not your thoughts and you know that's quite snappy and it's easily quotable but you know is there real merit in that idea you know how how do we use a different language to sort of distance ourselves from our self-judgment in what we're thinking you know I thought I remember very clearly it was about 12 years ago, I was on the way to Trinidad to visit my best friend who was living there. I was pregnant, it was a sort of last holiday. And I was reading this book about having a different relationship with your thoughts, part of my clinical training. And I read a line that said, you know, you aren't your thoughts, you're separate from your thoughts. And I literally, I remember being on the plane and I wanted to stand up and say, do you all know this? <laughs> I remember so yeah, clearly gosh. we were on the tarmac. Yeah. And I uh-huh. remember thinking, hang on, what? And I know it sounds, maybe this is something everyone else but me knew. But I was like, you're not your thoughts? Oh my God, if you're not your thoughts, what are you? Because Whoa. I live in my yeah. head. I'm one of those people mm. that, that intellectualizes mm-hmm. everything. So the way that then I gradually began to learn about it and explore this way of thinking about things is, you know, you can't, you're right, there is a meme there that's very easy. But the way that I really like to think about it is there's a distance between stimulus and response. So there's a difference between your thinking and how you respond to it. And I didn't really appreciate that before. The way I put it in the book is there's a space between you, the thinker, and the thought. That's so interesting. You know, I'm getting from this that it's kind of not I'm a loser. It's I'm having the thought that I'm a loser. Yeah, absolutely. I have those thoughts all the time. Right. So whoever is sitting there thinking, oh, it's easy for you. You write books. You're on a podcast. You know, whatever. I think quite frequently I am a failure. Oh, now, um, yeah. I think we've, we've, we've all been there. Yeah. We all relate with that one. Yeah. And the truth is, we all go through phases of our life or periods where these thoughts pop up. Now, I could argue, well, hey, you know, Liz Earl likes my books. So I can't be that much of a loser. <laughs> and um, I'm doing okay and things are all right. And, you know, I could just get trapped in this. What I think that one of the things the book shows you that is helpful is in a sense, it doesn't matter what the thought is. It's about learning to say, that's just a thought I'm having at the moment. I don't have to jump on that thought, like I jump on an emotional roller coaster when I have that thought. I can notice it. I can say, thanks, mind. I guess you're coming up with this stuff today and go (laughs) about my business. Wow. You like to give your mind a name, don't you? I mean, is that presumably to distance yourself from your thoughts even more clearly? Well, I sort of I joke in in the in the book, you know, maybe you could call your mind Sheila or something. (laughs) Um, Uh But I think the more you can you can try and see it as something that isn't you. Yeah, you can say, thanks, Sheila. You know, I'm really, I, I know you're coming up with thoughts that I'm a failure. Maybe you're trying to weirdly motivate me in some way. But you know what? I've got this today. Because if I did, if what I did is say, do you know what? I'm a massive failure. Well, I know what I'd do. I'd get into bed and I'd spend the day in bed feeling miserable. Whereas if I can say to myself, that's just a thought. And maybe there are things I could be doing differently. Well, when I can say I, there's there's that thought, I'm a failure and there's me, 
I can go about doing something much more useful in line with my values than hiding, right, or, or beating myself up about it. So that's kind of playing with the words in our heads. But mm. what about if we're really visualising events or, or stresses or traumas? What do we want to do with those? So I love this because one part of my, a big part of my trauma work is working with imagery. And actually, I'm thinking of a imagery-based book for the next next one. But one of the things that's fascinating to me is that when you conjure an image in your head, your brain perceives it in the same way as if it's real, right? It can't quite tell the difference. So if you come up with something, a very frightening image in your head, for example, so what happens to people in PTSD? They have a flashback, a very frightening image comes to their head their body responds to it in exactly the same way. Really, as if it was actually happening. As if it was actually happening. And to give you a less depressing example, that's exactly how sexual fantasy works. You can imagine Mm. that uh, Hugh Jackman is in your bedroom, knowing full well he isn't, and your body would respond. Amazing. It's it's doing exactly (laughs) the same thing. And these brilliant experiments, you put people into fMRI scanners and you play them a piece of music and the bits of their brain will light up. If you then scan them again and ask them just to imagine hearing that in their mind, that same bit of music, there's no music there, the same bits of their brain light up, slightly less strongly, but it responds in the same way. So what I'm saying is, it's like your brain can't quite tell the difference between what's real and what isn't real. So the stuff you play out in your head in images, which most of us do, but we we privilege talking about words, has an enormous impact on you. If you can start to notice what's going on in your head and do a similar thing with images that you do from words, which is sort of diffuse from it. So you can play around with that image to show your brain it's just an image, it's not really happening because your brain won't know the difference. Your brain is like, what is this? I need to respond to this threat. So the things I like to do is sort of, I imagine that, uh, let's say I'm playing out uh, something that happened. I had a really difficult argument with someone. Well, someone, I always, always mean my husband. Um, <laughs> you know, we had a really difficult conversation. I'm playing it over in my head in an unhelpful way. You can project it onto a cinnamon screen and imagine yourself just watching it. There's the distance there. You could turn it black and white. You could turn it upside down. You could imagine it on your phone and you swipe it away. The point is not whether it's real or not. The point is, can you play with the properties of that image so that your brain doesn't respond to it in a way that says this is happening? And then your body doesn't go into this state of stress, your heart beating faster, feeling really stressed. Again, you're just giving yourself distance And it might be that I have had a really terrible fight or a really bad experience at work or something has really bugged me. This thing really happened. Or maybe it might be quite likely to happen. Not the point. The point is it's not helping you to fall inside this image. It's not helping you to deal with it in any way. You need to come out of it, see it for what it is, and then think, what is my useful action in line with my values? So you're coming from a sort of mindful, value-driven place, 
not a place of stress and panic. Well, that is a a very opportune moment, I think, to take a quick pause here. When we're back, we can talk about how we can really make sure that we're thriving in midlife and put more of this practical information into practice. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, I start every episode of this podcast by saying that I want to make sure we're all thriving in later life. And Sam, I know that that's a really important concept for you too. So why is the way that a lot of us are currently dealing with stress stopping us from thriving? You know, presumably all our energy is going to just surviving and, you know, keeping our head above water. I think, well, I mean, I'm sort of heading, I'm 48. And so the things I thought about 10 years ago are quite different. And I don't know whether other listeners feel this, but I hadn't really anticipated what it would look like. Yeah, no, same, same, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think maybe our mothers didn't have the same sorts of experiences either. And it certainly wasn't something that was talked about. You know, menopause, I, no one I, I knew talked about no. that. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And so it's so good that that's happening. So I guess there are lots of things going on for us as we get older. And, and, and you know, quite a lot of the people, I, I, I've done lots of talks about the books and workshops. And I get lots of women of kind of 40s, 50s, 60s saying, well, you know what? I'm dealing with kids doing A-levels. 
right? And all the things that go on with kids when they're at school and making these big transitions. I've got parents who are ailing. I've got health problems myself, maybe menopause related. I'm still working long hours. Like there's very little space to even stop and, and think. And, you know, the reality is I'm, I'm, what I absolutely don't want to do is, you know, sort of come in and go, well, just do some little exercises and you'll feel so, of course yes. not. You know, so yeah. much of it, I think, is about also just listening and hearing that that's what people are going through. An awareness, actually. An awareness. You know, giving yourself that awareness. I think, you know, maybe, you know, some light bulbs are going off, hopefully, with people listening to this to actually get that greater awareness, because that has to be the start of it, doesn't it, of anything, is, is actually being aware. Absolutely. Noticing comes first, that maybe you are running yourself ragged. And what lots of people would say, you know, when I'm talking to them is, you know, but what do I do? How do I handle this with my kids and, and this with my parents and this with me and this and sometimes you know no amount of what what I think the work that I might be writing about can can help is helping you noticing those process and then maybe having to make some incredibly difficult choices maybe that the reality for lots of people is money might be an issue or time might be an issue or there's only one of you I can't solve that I can't clone you I can't find you extra help, but what I can help you do is find some space, a tiny bit of space in your head to think about, if I can't continue like this, it's going to just finish me, where do I find help? Where do I find the space? Where do I let things go? And maybe that's going to be really difficult. That's the other thing I think sometimes you, you know, we talked about managing expectations up front, is that sometimes we have to say, you know, when we look after our mental health or well-being, sometimes other people do not like it. No, I, I, I absolutely relate to that. And, you know, this, of course, is the Lizelle well-being show. Mm. And I was very interested to discover that you feel values are the secret weapon, really, of well-being. So why is that? Why are they so integral to your work? Well, I think this is this is the stuff of resilience, often. It gives you your why. Why do I want to do these things? Why do I want to manage my thoughts? Why do I want to live a certain way? Really what we're saying is how do we want to treat ourselves? How do we want to treat other people? How do we want to treat the planet? What do we want to stand for in this life? And these aren't questions because we're so busy that we often ask ourselves. And I think sometimes when you're feeling there's something not quite right in your life, there's a flatness or something isn't matching up, I think it's often because people are not aligned with their values. Often it looks like I haven't got enough time or I'm not being able to do this, I'm so stressed, I'm running from here to there. On the surface, that is true. But underneath it, often, often I find something else is happening, which is I'm out of tune with the kind of person I want to be. I'm out of tune with what I want to stand for in this life, because it's got lost. And that's, that's when I think people feel really lost in themselves. Yes, and I think for midlife women, actually, that feeling of, of losing yourself, your own identity, 
you know, can really manifest. And, you know, I'm just thinking out loud here that would it be helpful to just take a moment, you know, perhaps even after listening to this podcast to, to grab a pen and paper and just write down, you know, what are your values? What do you stand for? What do you as an individual stand for? Absolutely. And I think there's so many nice ways of doing that. So if someone would like to do that after the programme, and I encourage you to do it, one way of, of thinking about your values is think back to a time when you felt really alive, really in tune with, with what was important to you. It doesn't necessarily have to be a happy occasion. It might have been an occasion where you helped someone in need and that really spoke to somebody. Now, that's not like fun, like I would say Disneyland fun, because I love going to Disneyland. Really, <laughs> I'm slightly immature. Um, and But yeah, it's not that kind of fun. But maybe I felt I helped a stranger. You know that feeling that you help when you, you help someone and they're so... Oh, appreciative you feel quite yeah you feel quite tearful don't you it's euphoric you know I mean they yeah. always say it's better to, to give than to receive Absolutely. and that it's such a truism isn't it or, you know maybe you did something you helped a friend or you reached out to someone you thought they're having a really difficult time and you know maybe those are the moments that really speak to you and there's one in the in the book that I find very powerful which is imagining your own funeral And three people from your life get up to speak about you. Someone from your personal life, maybe someone from your work, and maybe a friend. It can be anything you like. What do you want them to say about you? And this is a really, I would really, this is quite a deep experience. I know it sounds glib, but it really is. Because it will tell you what you want people to feel about you or to what you want to have contributed and it might be there could be a big gap between that yes. and where you are now and that can I, be I was just thinking yeah I was just thinking that there may well be some gaps there you know you, you may get a glowing review if you like from you know your, mm. your nearest and dearest but what would your colleagues say what would the wider community say indeed would they say anything at all would there be anything for them to say and that is painful because maybe you've lost sight of that. What I would say to to you, to someone who's listening to that and feels that that could be a painful experience is we cannot change anything that has gone before. But the beautiful thing about values is you can act on them in the tiniest way from this second forward. Yeah, and and that is a really powerful thing. So as we look then perhaps at the next chapter of our life, and you know, a lot of my work is all about having a better second half, Mm. When we look at mid or later life, you know, what do you feel about the concept of setting goals for that? So I think it's still so important to have those things in your life. I think maybe women of our age, we saw our, our older women maybe not working, maybe very different experiences to what we might have. And I really think it's important to know what goes on in your head when you picture what does 60 mean? You know, when I was used to think what 60 meant, it was sort of being a granny, sitting in a chair and eating quality street <laughs> and, you know, kind of hobbling about. And yeah, I'm not that I've got it. I mean, do you know what I mean? Like we've got I mean, I've, I've just turned 60 and I have to say, you know, if I look back to my younger self and think, you know, when I was in my 20s, 30s, 40s, even what did 60 look like? It certainly did not look how I am today. And, you know, I'm, I'm projecting forward thinking, OK, so then what does 70 look like for me? What does 80 look well, like? Well, I me? think we should be looking at Helen Mirren and saying that's what it looks like. 
let's look after ourselves and make it look like that. And then I think, oh, wow, you know, not like, oh, I've got 10 years before I retire and then I sit around in my chair eating my quality trees, though not unappealing at times. Um, <laughs> you know, actually, there's so much more to achieve. And the funny thing I think about this is when I started thinking about writing a, a, a book, um, I I was like, I must have been about just before COVID, so four, five years ago, I was in my early to mid 40s. Even then I thought, oh, am I... I too old or you know and I looked at women who were doing interesting things who were five years older than me and I always thought wouldn't it be great to have like a a mentoring thing called you know five up where you had someone five years above you kind of you could look to and think that's what I would like and I remember there's a there's a woman who runs a, a, a Instagram account called that's not my age and she writes about fashion and she's fantastic and I remember thinking well, she's doing amazing things. Maybe I could do something too. Maybe I'm not, I'm not, you know, I haven't passed it. I know it sounds crazy. Of course you haven't. But you know, you get into this way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, you do. And society doesn't help. And interesting, you know, talking about great people on Instagram, there's a wonderful centenarian, Iris Arpel. I love her. Isn't she fabulous? I mean, she's well over 100. Yeah. And she is probably the most stylish woman on the planet. Hasn't she got the best glasses ever? The best glasses and earrings. And now she's designing rugs and doing all sorts of other crazy things. I know. I mean, what a model. What a role model for us. Uh, Absolutely. We've got 40, 50 years before we even get to her age. So I think we must set ourselves, our goals aligned with our values, to look forward to those things, to have things to work towards, but also, you know, to be trying to find that meaning in life now that keeps you keeps you going. And I, I guess maybe, you know, things change as your children get older and you may maybe there's more space for you as those those things change. I just feel like it could become I used to feel like, oh, it feels like a scary time. I think it could actually become quite an exciting time because you're the best time, the best time because you're not going to Mm. care what people think (laughs) about your shoes or your earrings. You're going Uh to one of the great, you know, we often talk about this period of life being quite stressful, but actually it comes with amazing strengths as well, which is, you know, your own mind so much better. You know, what's important to you. Often you care less about what other people think. You're not, I would rather be now than 25. I mean, you know, and I think that actually we've got some superpowers. I love that. And, you know, presumably one of the superpowers here would be self-compassion, actually allowing ourselves that moment to thrive and and, and to look ahead and to regain our confidence. I think a lot of people, particularly going through menopause, will have this real crisis of confidence. And there's a lot of talk of low self-worth. But actually, if we can love ourselves a bit more, cut ourselves a bit of slack, then and embrace that that compassionate element that we perhaps feel for others, but often maybe overlook with ourselves. Completely. And self-compassion, the research into self-compassion, it's really clear. It really helps with resilience. It's a massive strength. And I try to speak to this in the book because I think there are lots of misconceptions. You say self-compassion, people just think it means self-pity. Far right. from it. Far from it. Okay. Self-compassion is really tough work. But it's about holding yourself with that kindness that you would to other people and understanding that sometimes the nature of 
human existence, I'm going quite deep for a Friday morning, mm. is that mm. some suffering is, is inevitable. And, 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 and being kind to yourself in the face of that, of that suffering. And that's a real skill. But you, you talk about the practical life changes mm. that, that might be happening in midlife and that we're probably all experienced right now. When we look at resilience in terms of adapting to those changes in our identity, sometimes we use words that are maybe not helpful. You know, we might say to ourselves or even to others, you know, I'm a business owner, I am a mother, I am tidy. You know, you've got those sort of absolute <laughs> statements that we make. Does, does that then make coping with change more difficult? Because we have to then say, well, actually, I'm not. You know, I'm now moving out of that. Is it better that we don't kind of self-label? I, I think so. And I'll, absolutely. Our brains like labels, right? They're easy shortcuts. And I think when we hold on to anything really tightly, and I do it all the time, and I have to check myself, and because I don't want people to listen to this and think, I'm sitting here in some zen state where I never have to do any of this stuff on myself. I'm having to do it on myself every other minute of the day sometimes, right? That's the work, psychologist or not. And if you hold on very tightly to those labels, you can come a cropper with that. Because we won't, you know, yes, I'm a mother, but my role as a mother changes. Yes, I'm a psychologist, but what if I'm not a psychologist anymore? What if I have a car crash and I can't, I lose my faculties and I can't, can't do that? Sometimes it's more helpful to say, I'm someone who works as a psychologist. I, I love that. I love that kind of distancing that, that we're talking about here and understanding our brains better. And there are lessons in there, aren't there, about this idea of thriving mm. in life. And I guess allowing ourselves to change over time, to grow, to have different priorities and to really lean into what kind of lifestyle is going to make us feel good right now. Absolutely. And I think we sometimes get this thing and I, maybe the work is really to be done in your 20s now, think about it, which is, you know, you're sort of you feel like you have to set out your stall then, don't you? This is what I do as a living. This is the relationship I have. This is who I am. And of course, what that doesn't, anything that I, I realise now, things that do not allow for growth become problematic. And what I think we can do as we come to midlife is allow for that growth, that maybe what, what who you were now isn't who you were when you were 25. Maybe you've changed in some way and that's good and fine. How do you take that forward? What what speaks to you now that's important to you? And listening to them rather than thinking, I am a kind of person who, because that's what you were like when you were 21 or 31. Like maybe you're different. You've it what I like about that, Liz, is it allows for you to make room for your experiences and your learning and to move forward with them. And ultimately, that is what wisdom is. I love it. I absolutely love it, Sam. I've so enjoyed our conversation and that's a really wonderful, positive note to end on. Huge success and good luck with the book. It's brilliant. Highly recommended. And thank you so much for your time today. I, I know for one, I've learned an awful lot. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, wasn't that just so interesting? I just I just love these podcasts and getting the opportunity to talk to amazing women like Sam. I mean, just phenomenal and amazing that she can actually take all that hardcore trauma work. Can you imagine dealing with 
torture survivors from ISIS and then translating that into practical help that we can all use in our daily lives. Just incredible. And I think it's really important actually to remember that resilience, you know, as Sam said, it's not about never falling down. It's about getting back up and choosing how to move forward no matter what we've come through. So Dr. Sam Akbar, a huge thank you for your time. Well, lots more tips and tools, of course, to support your mental health and physical well-being. And you can find those over on lizellwellbeing.com. That's the mothership. While you are there, do sign up for the free weekly email newsletter that comes into your inbox each and every Friday around tea time. If you signed up and you don't get it, do check your spam because sometimes those little gremlins hold it up. Um, How very dare they? Anyway, you can also come and find Find us on social media too. We are at Lizelle Wellbeing. And for me personally, I am at Lizelle Me. So has hearing from Sam maybe changed the way you think about your thoughts? Curious. I'd love to know. I'll be back with another episode next week. And if you'd like to listen to that one and all future episodes ad free, you can now subscribe to the Lizelle Wellbeing Show Plus. And that's on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee. And as a subscriber, you also get 24 hour early access to all those ad free episodes. Well, until the next time we chat, I wish you very well. Goodbye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.